0: I'm going to share with you three ways you can support Remember Me and two of them don't cost anything. The first thing is if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I want you to just scroll down to the bottom of the page when you're finished listening to this episode and you can leave us a review. That helps us be seen on more charts and discovered by more people so we can spread the word. Two, share our podcast on Facebook, Instagram, share in support group. Maybe you have a loved one or a friend or someone who isn't really understanding the journey, share an episode with them that you think will help them understand this more. The third and final one is a way to support us and you get something out of it as well. Have you heard of our members only site, Remembers Only? Remembers Only is a special part of our website It has tons of extra content, including video content, extra podcasts, dementia resources, grief resources, and we host a special happy hour every month. Last month we had yoga. This month we have a writing workshop. It's a really amazing place to connect with other people going through the same thing, whether you're currently in the thick of the FTD or dementia journey, or if you're on the other side. If you want to check out Remembers Only, it's $10 a month or 99 for the year. An amazing way to support us and help us grow. Go to remembermeftd.com slash joinro.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Rachel, and I'm Maria, and we're the hosts of Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of
0: those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember
1: Me. Dr. Brad Dickerson is a behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist dedicated to the sophisticated, compassionate and multidisciplinary care of patients with neurodegenerative disorders, including Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia. He is director of the MGH Frontotemporal Disorders Unit, Tommy Rickey's Endowed Chair in Progressive Aphasia Research, and is a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dickerson runs a large multidisciplinary team of more than 25 clinicians and scientists who use advanced brain imaging and behavioral methods to study how memory, language, emotion, and social behaviors change in normal aging and in patients with neurodegenerative diseases. And we are so excited to share this episode with you. So sit back and relax and enjoy.
0: Today we have the incredible honor of having Dr. Dickerson on the podcast. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Maria. It's it's a real honor to be here. I uh, commend you. So much for the work you've been doing to raise awareness about frontotemporal dementia through your podcast. It's uh, really a privilege to be with you today on Remember Me.
0: So, I know many of our listeners have heard your name throughout the podcast and in the world of FTD. Of course, we've had members of your team from MGH, we've had Katie Brandt and Diane Lucente featured on episodes. I think this is a really unique episode for our community because we've never had an episode that really breaks down the science of FTD, but also perhaps it could be a tool for people to share with a loved one or a coworker, or maybe someone at your loved one's assisted living facility where they can learn a little bit more of the background of FTD. And I know we're going to get into to kind of how it is different from what we think of when we think of dementia. So I think where we want to start is just diving right into what is FTD?
2: Yes. And as you well know, Maria and Rachel, most people that are ultimately diagnosed with FTD have never heard of it. And in many cases, the medical professionals that have been involved in their care may never have heard of it in, in hindsight. So frontotemporal dementia is an umbrella term that is applied to a set of what may be somewhat different seeming conditions that are overall pretty rare compared to something like Alzheimer's disease, dementia. And so I'll just start by saying the way we think about these diseases now is that there's the way a person is affected, and we often have names for that, the constellation of symptoms that a person has, how they're changed from how they used to be. So we we often give names to that and I'll go through that. And then there's the brain disease inside the brain that is ultimately, you know, causing the parts of the brain not to work right. And we have terms for that too. And sometimes they overlap. And so it's really tricky to try to navigate even just the terminology in this area. And it's evolving, like the the whole field is evolving uh, of dementia in terms of how terminology is used. But with FTD, there are three main types in terms of the clinical presentation, the way a person is affected at the beginning of their illness that leads them to seek medical attention or their family members have them seek medical attention. There's the behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia, what many people think of when they think of, if, if they know anything about this illness, what they think of when they think about it. And that's the condition where people have changes in their personality. They often have changes in their emotional processing, their ability to understand other people's feelings, their responses to other people's feelings, and often their interests, even. Sometimes people become obsessive about certain things. And disconnected from their family members. And with those kinds of changes happening at the beginning of their illness, that's why a lot of people with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia get initially referred to a psychiatrist or other mental health professional, because most medical practitioners don't think of those kinds of symptoms as coming from a brain disease that would require a neurologist's involvement. So then the other two types are two types of progressive aphasia. Or language changes, where at the beginning of the illness, people may either have problems getting words out. And uh, that's called the non fluent variant of primary progressive aphasia, where people are gradually having more and more trouble getting words out. And often their syntax, their grammatical expression in sentences becomes simplified. And it's almost like they're texting all the time, but that's the way they speak. The other type is called the semantic variant of primary progressive aphasia, and that's where people have the opposite problem, which is basically they start to lose their understanding of the meanings of words. That may cause them to speak in more vague terms, but then the key thing is if someone says something to them that's a less common word, they'll often say, uh, like, for example, we often ask people a question like, you know, does a cork float in water? when we're asking people about their fund of knowledge and a lot of patients with this kind of problem will say, what's a cork? They'll act as if they've never heard the word before even though of course, even if you didn't know what something meant you would know that you'd heard the word before. So it's a very abnormal response you know, when uh, people do that. And so the strange thing is that these very different ways that people are affected can come from the same disease in the brain. And so they're all lumped under the category of frontotemporal dementia but they can affect people in such different ways that it sometimes doesn't even make sense to try to put them in the same support group together, for example, because they have very different issues.
1: That's so interesting. Um, in your research and your experience, can you tell us sort of what causes FTD? How does somebody develop that?
2: Right. So when you think about these, what are often feeling like strange changes in a person's language or behavior or decision making abilities, the first question is, what's going on in the brain? And so a lot of times we'll do various types of brain scans. Uh, sometimes we'll do final fluid of, uh, analysis, and uh, eventually someday we'll probably be able to measure some of these things with blood tests. But what we're trying to figure out is, is this frontotemporal lobar degeneration in the brain, which is the technical term for the family of diseases in the brain that strike these front parts of the brain and cause these changes in people's functioning. And so we can often see evidence of that on certain kinds of brain scans. So then we can make a pretty confident diagnosis. Now, there are people that have symptoms where you can't see evidence on brain scans, and that may be because it's too early in the process to pick up, or sometimes we see people that we don't know for sure, you know, if this is really frontotemporal lobar degeneration pathology in the brain because they have the symptoms, but we can't see the abnormalities on the scan. And those people, we just have to follow for longer and try to see, you know, is there some other explanation or has it just not gotten to the point where we can see it? So then the question is, why does a person have that in their brain? if they do. And so rarely it can be frontotemporal lobar degeneration in the brain can result from a genetic abnormality that was inherited from a parent. That's thought to be 10 to 15% of cases. So pretty uncommon. Most people ask about it, but when we're able to identify that then we can say, okay, you have a genetic abnormality that was passed down from your parent to you. And that caused you to function normally for 50 years, for some reason, and then develop this degenerative change in your brain that is now causing it to lose function. Most of the time, unfortunately, we don't have that kind of a clear explanation. So something like 85% of cases are what we call sporadic, which means there's no evidence that they came from anyone else in the family. We don't know why they happened. And that's the case for most of Alzheimer's disease, most of Parkinson's disease, most of ALS and other diseases in the same family of neurodegenerative diseases. So it's a real mystery as to why people get those when they don't have a genetic cause. And the thinking is that probably there's a whole panel of genetic variations that a person has, maybe 20, maybe 50, maybe 100, that set them up to have a vulnerability, probably to one or more things in the environment that many of us may be exposed to, but not get sick from because we don't have that set of variations in our genetic vulnerability. That's the way people think about a lot of kinds of cancers too these days and even heart disease. Someday I think we'll we'll understand that better. There's at least some evidence in terms of environmental causes that repeated serious head injuries could cause some pathology that is at least like what we see in FTD in the brain. That's something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy that we're learning a lot about from from the studies of football players and other professional athletes. Obviously, that's not what is going on in the vast majority of people's cases. And we don't think a single head injury, if it's not that bad, or a few of them is enough to cause a disease like this. So we're still really scratching our heads to try to figure out why most of the people that come down with these illnesses
1: develop them. We're still scratching our heads too.
0: So kind of going back to you know, there are these three initial presentations. So I have a question about that. So Rachel's dad had behavioral variant FTD and my mom was diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia. However, throughout the course of their diseases, and we see this a lot in some of the stories we hear, you know, someone who initially presents with aphasia might, you know, start to have some behavioral challenges like my mom did, or, you know, someone who initially presents with behavioral variant, will become nonverbal. So did you mention initial presentation because eventually people kind of end up having kind of all the symptoms?
2: That's a great question. I, I should have followed up in my initial comments to um, say that. The way we think about what why people have one type or another is that for some reason, a certain part of the brain is affected first. And we don't know why that happens. But for example, if the left frontal lobe is affected first, that's a part of the brain that's important for producing syntax and uh, the output of speech. And so, if the FTD starts in the left frontal lobe, you'll have the non-fluent variant of primary progressive aphasia. If it starts in the left temporal lobe, in most people that are right-handers anyway, that's where we store our one place where we store our understanding of the meanings of at least some kinds of words. That will cause a person to start out with the semantic variant of PPA. If it starts more on both sides, but maybe a little bit more on the right side, that's behavioral variant. And so what happens over time is it spreads to other connected regions in the same neighborhood of circuits in the brain. And you start to see the other symptoms of the other variants in many people over time. So many people with progressive aphasia, over time, they'll start to develop uh, changes in their personality and behavior when people start out with the behavior variant over time, many of them will start to have problems with their language and communication. So they do end up kind of merging in a sense as the disease progresses. And, you know, by the time people get to the moderate to severe stage of dementia, where they need help with basic activities of daily living, they're often affected in fairly similar ways.
0: Thank you for explaining the science behind that. I think it's something we've kind of gathered from many of our interviews and our own personal experience that a lot of times the symptoms kind of merge but it's good to know like the background of kind of why that is happening so thank you next question would be how do you diagnose ftd now what are what are you looking for
2: yeah that that's really important Um, we sometimes get patients referred to us with a diagnosis of suspected ftd because they had a uh, mri scan or a pet scan that showed problems in parts of the front of their brain But when we evaluate them, they don't have any of the symptoms that we typically think of as part of FTD. So the first thing we do is take a detailed history, usually from the, the patient with the illness, but importantly from someone who knows them well, because many patients don't have full awareness of the changes in their functioning and may not even think anything is wrong at all. And so a good quality history of what has happened at home and in daily life is really important. And then we do an examination of the person testing different aspects of their cognitive functioning, observing how they behave in the office, uh, doing a neurologic exam, um, doing a psychiatric interview to try to make sure, you know, we understand what their um, mood is like and, and, and whether they're having any kind of hallucinations or delusions about things, which we sometimes hear about from family members as well. Once we get all that information, which uh, comes from one or several office visits, then we start to have a strong suspicion, this is likely a form of FTD or not. We really generate a hypothesis then about, you know, what do we expect we're gonna see on an MRI scan of the brain? And then depending on whether that confirms our thinking or not, we may be done. We may have a confident diagnosis at that point. In other cases, It's not so clear, and we need to get a glucose PET scan, which measures the the functioning of the brain and is thought to be a little more sensitive than an MRI scan. And so sometimes that's what confirms the diagnosis, and then we can stop there. Other times we need to get other kinds of tests to try to be confident. The thing that we don't yet have in the field of FTD, which has really been something that's moved the field of Alzheimer's disease forward very substantially, are molecular biomarkers of the disease. And what that means is With Alzheimer's disease, you've got amyloid plaques and tau tangles in the brain, and we can measure those through spinal fluid or through different kinds of PET scans that specifically measure those proteins as they accumulate in abnormal ways in the brain. We don't yet have that for FTD, and we badly need it, and we're making progress on it, Um, but we really need those molecular biomarkers so that we can be not only absolutely confident in the diagnosis itself, but understand the type of it because there are two major types of FTD in the brain, uh, one called tau and one called TDP-43. And those are probably completely distinct from each other and probably in the long run will be treated in a distinct way. You'll you'll have the people that have the tau type of FTD treated with medications targeting that pathological protein in the brain. Uh, And these are all normal proteins in the brain, but they basically get sort of twisted and tangled on themselves and mess up the functioning of the cells. So we don't want to get rid of them because they're important. We want to get rid of the bad type of them, the abnormal form of them. And that's the kind of thing that we've heard so much about with regard to Alzheimer's disease in the past year or so, because the first type of that medication was provisionally approved by the FDA, even though it came with a lot of controversy. But we're in a position in research now where we're hopefully going to start to see more of what we call disease-modifying therapies that are making it their way through clinical trials and eventually into practice where we would be able to slow down the progression of the disease if we target it specifically. And that's why we need those biomarkers that will tell us which form of FTD in the brain a person has, even though we may know what how it's affecting them you know, in their functions. So it can be a complicated set of tests to do a diagnosis with, but it all starts with a good quality history and examination.
1: When you started to answer this question, you mentioned the patient's awareness, you know, in the office, in their response to your questions. And this is sort of more of an emotional question, but we get asked a lot. Do you have any way to measure or understand what the person with FTD knows?
2: That's such an important question. And I think you know, the the way I think about it is similarly to the way I think about how do you evaluate whether a person has the capacity to make their own independent decision about something important in their life, which is obviously an issue that every single patient and family with dementia comes across sooner or later. And so basically what you have to try to do is to figure out When this person has a problem with something, if they make a mistake in their language that is obvious, if they make a bad decision that leads to poor consequences, are they aware of that? And do they understand that something went wrong? And so I think sometimes we try to test that during testing. So when you give many patients a set of cognitive tests in the office or in the research lab, they'll get upset when they make a mistake and they know they made a mistake. And then you can say, okay, she's aware she made a mistake. She didn't do as well as she should have on that test. Other patients don't seem to notice. And so you can sometimes call their attention to it and say, did you realize that you just learned that person's name and address that we read you and you you were able to say it back to us and, and you did it three times. But then after 10 minutes, we asked you again, and did you realize you didn't remember it at all? And usually when you do that, the person says, what are you talking about? I did what you asked me to. And then you can tell they don't realize that they're making a mistake. So you don't wanna rub a person's nose in it or confront them too strongly with it, but I think a lot of times a sort of mild interrogation, if you will, uh, about what happened and why it happened and what could have been done differently would lead a person to uh, understand whether the patient has awareness something wrong happened or something that was out of the ordinary happened or that they you know didn't do something correctly. I think much of the time people really do lack insight into their symptoms. And I think in many cases, that may be a blessing for the person with the illness because they don't suffer if they don't have the awareness that they're not functioning properly um, in the way that we all would expect them to. But of course, it's more distressing for the family because then you don't know what to talk about with the patient. You don't know how to talk about it with the patient. You feel guilty because you're having to tell white lies to the person to get them to do things or not do things. So it's a huge problem and it's very difficult to figure out. But I think the way we approach it is to try to, you know, as gently as possible, ask people questions about what they did or didn't do. And and obviously that's easier to do when you're a doctor doing testing with the patient. And I think that's ultimately one of the questions that families should ask medical professionals that are taking care of their patients is, in your opinion, what do you think this person understands or doesn't understand about the problems they're having?
0: That was a great question, Rachel. One question that I always got asked when my mom was still living, we're taking her to church and you know, people understood, you know, something wasn't quite right, but they didn't fully understand her disease. People would say, Does she remember you? And I tried to explain to them this is not Alzheimer's. And I think this is a common frustration for a lot of us on the F T D journey. So could you explain to us, maybe give us some tools to explain to others how FTD is different from Alzheimer's.
2: Yeah, with with what most people think of uh, as Alzheimer's disease, a person has major memory loss. But at the beginning anyway, they are otherwise fully functioning so because this is such a common problem and because we often think of that as almost a normal part of aging which we really shouldn't but I think it's such a common problem that that, that many people think oh he or she's just older he's forgetting things it's kind of normalized in a sense in society it's often you know not uh not that bad you know I think that When people really have Alzheimer's, it does progress to affect their ability to live independently and they develop dementia and it can be quite bad and they can develop major mood or behavioral symptoms that sometimes look just like symptoms of a person with FTD. Usually that's not till later in the course of Alzheimer's disease when that happens though. And there are people with Alzheimer's that, can mimic different types of FTD. So we often end up saying, yeah, this looks like a progressive aphasia that you might expect to be due to FTD, but actually it's a one of the types of progressive aphasia that can be caused by Alzheimer's disease. So we have a lot of people with atypical Alzheimer's disease in our clinic because they were initially thought to have FTD or were not recognized as having Alzheimer's. But I think that with Alzheimer's, eventually many patients will forget people that they knew and loved. And that usually starts with people they haven't seen in a while or don't see very often. And eventually, usually uh, affects their memory for family members as well. Um, With FTD, I think many patients do remember their family members, but they have different ways of either interacting with them or communicating with them that really changes the relationship. And sometimes that's something you can work around and maintain a lot of the connection that you've always had. And other times it's a fundamental change in the relationship that can in some cases, I think, be harder to deal with than when a person is forgetting who someone is just because it can lead to the feeling that the person doesn't love me anymore by the way they're acting. And I mean, what could be worse than that?
0: Not much. So my family was incredibly lucky to be able to come to the MGH FTD unit to have found you and you know, to have my mom seen there by you and your team I think you have the most incredible bedside manner of any doctor I've ever met. Um, But anyway, I would love if you could share with our listeners kind of your approach to care, because I think it's very unique compared to the experience that a lot of our listeners have.
2: Well, thank you. That's so kind of you to say, Maria. I really appreciate it. You know, I think it, this probably came from my experience at the Alzheimer's Association because even though I was translating research, I was also answering queries from patients and families about the research and what they could participate in. And so it became very clear to me that, you know, we really have to focus on the patient and the, the family or friends or other circle that is loving and caring for them that's what matters. And so I think that we really do everything we can to try to take the perspective of the patient and the family into consideration and meet the person and people where they are with their understanding of what's going on. And often that's really starting at square one and and educating people about the brain, about what parts of the brain do, about what happens when those parts of the brain don't work right, and especially reinforcing the idea that this is no one's fault. You know, This is not because someone didn't do something right or because they did something wrong. This is a disease like cancer or uh, heart disease or other diseases that in most people didn't arise as a result of something that they should have done differently. So I think we start from that perspective and then really try to think about what are the symptoms that are most troublesome in people's daily life? and are there things we can do about those? Um, Sometimes there are medications that can help, even if they don't uh, really change the nature of what's going on in the brain. Other times it's really a behavioral strategy that we need to try to help people figure out how to employ. Other times, uh, speech language therapy or other rehabilitative types of therapies, even though they don't make a person better per se, they may help patients and families figure out how to compensate for some of the challenges they're dealing with. So, you know, really became clear to me early on that it takes a village of people with different expertise to help address all of the needs that patients and families living with these illnesses have. And some of those can come from the medical, uh, from our hospital and and the medical system, and others need community resources. And that's partly why Katie Brandt and others on our team have partnered with a number of uh, companies or professionals or groups in the community to try to bring in some of the other resources that are not typically part of what the medical system can offer. I think that there are plenty of practitioners who don't have those resources and have to rely on their own time. And and maybe if they're lucky, a social worker or a nurse, and that's, that's it, you know? And so we try to partner as best as possible with people like that, especially if a patient and family are coming from some distance to try to help them work together. So it may be that a person has a local neurologist that they go see for some of the problems they're dealing with. And then they come here once every six months or, or whatever frequency may be for more specialized kinds of care and we're always happy to work out an arrangement like that because it often uh, helps the non specialist learn more about these conditions and raises their abilities to deliver care to their local community. So we really like those kinds of partnerships and you don't have to be able to afford all of these resources yourself as a medical practitioner in order to feel like you're giving people the best care. I think you just need to figure out what the right partnerships are to work with and do handoffs that make sense to give a person and family the best care possible.
0: So you mentioned that you would sit down with families and kind of break down the brain for them. And that was something I found so helpful when my father and I sat down with you. Um, But perhaps you could kind of give us some bullet points, give us some tools on how to explain FTD so that when we're speaking to people that have no idea what we're talking about, um, and we can kind of very clearly explain to them what is happening with our loved one.
2: Sure. Yeah. I think we need to move in a direction more like the field of stroke, you know, so or head injury, you know, if, if someone tells you, yeah, um, my mother had a stroke, you immediately know, okay, that's not good. But the first question is usually, well, how, how is she affected? Like what happened to, how, how? what doesn't work right for her? So I think that's something that we should be doing in the world of dementia too, is just not making assumptions about what a person's symptoms might be, but saying, well, okay, the person has frontotemporal dementia. We understand that's a rare type of dementia that is in the family of conditions like Alzheimer's, but it affects a person in a different way. And um, how is your mother affected? And I think we should, you know, encourage people to have that dialogue because I think a lot of people are afraid of the term dementia and just don't even want to go there, you know, but I think if we say, well, dementia happens because parts of the brain stop working right. And if... If it's the front part of the frontal lobe on the left side, it may affect a person's speech, but the rest of their brain might function perfectly well and they can't speak right, but they can live their life very well, at least, you know, for a while. Uh, If it's a part of their right frontal lobe, it might affect some of their judgment uh, and decision-making and cause them to take risks they wouldn't have taken before. So I think it, it all comes down to, you know, really encouraging people to be curious about how does that affect your loved one? Tell me more about that and um, describe what's different about her or him than how she was before. And then, you know, hopefully a neurologist or someone that's got expertise in, in how the brain works can tell you more about, well, that's because this part of the brain isn't working right. But I think that's less important than just, you know, encouraging each other to be open about the communication with each other about how does that affect your life and how does your loved one not behave in the way they used to?
1: That's such a good response. Nobody ever asked, like when I said, oh, my dad has FTD or I would never, I don't think I ever really said like frontal temporal dementia. I think I always said FTD, it's a rare form of dementia and always, oh, does he still know who you are? Yeah. Because it's the dementia. Right. That's the
0: association. Yeah. So one thing that comes up a lot on our podcast and you mentioned it too, is this misdiagnosis or like constantly going to different mental health professionals and thinking someone is depressed or manic or bipolar what is like the missing piece that a psychiatrist or a mental health professional should be looking for that would be like that light bulb to know that this is something more
2: it's difficult because you know uh these things are gradual changes they always the diagnostic criteria always use the term insidious You know, so I think that's a very good term for this because it happens, you know, usually incrementally under your nose. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a second. This is a big change in the way the person's functioning. But it came on in a way that just didn't cross the threshold of awareness for even many times a spouse, you know. Um, So I think it's really difficult. I mean, uh, you know, when you're a primary care doctor or. Uh, even a general psychiatrist, it's far more common, you know, uh, 50 million people have major depressive disorder, 30 million people have generalized anxiety disorder, maybe 200,000 people at most in the whole US have frontotemporal dementia. So it makes sense that, you know, when you're dealing with something so rare, it would get missed, you know, because there are so many more common things that often start out looking like that. I think we all do the best we can to educate every medical professional or friend or colleague that we run into about these things when we have the opportunity to talk about them. At the end of the day I think that the medical professionals that are on the front lines have to look at what's going on and say what feels a little different about this what doesn't fit the mold you know um, And I think that's often the tip off along with changes in people's functioning you know uh, you can have plenty of changes in function if you have major depressive disorder, but usually they come and go along with the waxing and waning, mood usually they don't progressively decline you know and I think that's one of the key factors that um, that should tip off someone that it's not a primary psychiatric disorder but that can take time
0: another really common theme is alcohol do you have any insight into why that is such a common thread in people's stories and why there is such an increase in alcohol consumption with this disease?
2: It's a great question I think it's Part of the diagnostic criteria for behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia is something called hyperorality, and so there can be a tendency for people to to change their eating behavior, to change their drinking behavior, to change their smoking behavior, even in some cases. And some of the parts of the brain that are involved in frontotemporal dementia are important for reward and um, inhibition. You know, so if you think about someone that drinks too much alcohol, the brain is getting some kind of a reward signal from that. And they're not able to inhibit their tendency to want more. And those are some of the core uh, circuits in the brain that get affected in FTD. So it can go in both directions. People can suddenly stop smoking. You know, they can lose an addiction they've had. Um, but usually it's the other way and they start either eating too much or drinking too much or other things like that.
1: Um I want to just switch a little to like some, some light. Can you tell us what's happening in research right now? What are you seeing? What's Give us something good, hopefully.
2: <laughs> yes. There's there are so many challenges in the field of FTD that it can be pretty depressing, but I think there's a tremendous international research effort that will change the nature of how we live with FTD someday, and I hope it's pretty soon. And so The things that I think are exciting about research are, we are really making great progress in our ability to measure what's going wrong with a person's abilities whether it's their thinking, whether it's their personality and behavior and social interactions, or whether it's their um, movement and motor function. And we're increasingly starting to be able to make measures of those kinds of things with things like uh, digital speech analysis. Um, so we all know how Alexa you know, can do things we ask her to or maybe makes a mistake, but it's usually pretty close. Um, so speech recognition is making such incredible strides that the field of FTD and dementia research in general is starting to try to make use of it to be able to measure changes in not just people's speech and language, but other aspects of their cognitive function, like memory, in a much more fine-grained, objective way than we have been able to. And the reason that's important is because those are going to be the clinical trial outcomes of the future. You know, when we have treatments that uh, we think are helpful, what we want to know is, do they make a meaningful difference in a person's life and, and help them? And one of the ways we're going to be able to figure that out, I think, is by embedding some of these kinds of digital signals that we can measure into people's lives and being able to really connect the treatments with at least stabilization of a person's function in their daily life. Um, we're making a lot of progress in the biomarkers, whether it's with imaging or with fluid. And like I said earlier, we're not that far off, I don't think, from being able to measure some of these things In blood, and that will be a real transformation to the field. It's not like we're going to make a definitive diagnosis from a blood test. It's more like we're going to be able to say, okay, this problem is more likely, or this problem is less likely based on screening for certain proteins in the blood. And so it'll make the whole process of evaluating a patient more efficient, we hope. The other thing is, I was just on an advisory board meeting earlier today with a company that's working on several different medications that they're hoping will be uh, useful for the treatment of FTD. And there are a growing number of companies that are working on this and academic laboratories that are getting their ideas into the hands of the pharmaceutical industry. Some of some of those companies are big pharma companies. Others are really just startups just getting going from a new idea. And so we're seeing a real investment there. And so every two years, we have meetings with what's called the FTD Treatment Study Group, which is a bunch of us in the academic medical community, a bunch of company scientists that are working on FTD and members of the FDA. And the whole goal of that is to really lay the foundation for a more efficient and rapid evaluation of the results of the trials that are starting to be run of these new treatments. And then there's a whole other area of research on brain stimulation technologies that are either magnetic or electrical, or uh, in some cases, even certain kinds of light. So we don't have any idea if those are gonna work, but it's a whole different way of trying to approach the problem. And it could be, especially if you think about something like progressive aphasia, if you could tweak, if you could stimulate the language circuits of the brain to function a little more efficiently, even if you're ultimately not slowing down the progression of the disease, You might be able to help people live a higher quality of life for a longer period of time. So, those are some of the things that I'm optimistic about in terms of things that are going to pay off in the not too distant future. And and there's also a growing body of research trying to measure the value of family and caregiver support interventions because we need those to be paid for. And the only way that's going to happen is if we show value added, if we show that the evidence supports the idea that either you're improving quality of life, reducing cost, or otherwise making a meaningful impact in people's lives with these kinds of supports. And so it's great to see more research on that. I think the two other things that I'm really excited about are the federal government, if they're doing nothing else right, they're increasing the investment in dementia research by orders of magnitude every year. It's really gone up just in the last five years. And that's allowing a lot of research to be done that wouldn't have made it across the finish line before, because it used to be that there were lots of good ideas, but only the top 5% of them or 10% of them were getting funded. Now it's more like 20 to 25%. So it's a huge difference. And the other big thing is people are working more together. There's more emphasis on data sharing, collaboration, and going beyond your one single group that you have to work with a whole consortium or other groups to do more than what any one group could ever do on their own. So I think these are some of the things that make me optimistic that we're going to start to have more meaningful uh, treatments in the next decade, I think, and hopefully sooner.
1: Um, I would love to know who inspires your work.
2: Every single patient and family member that I have the honor of working with I always feel terrible that they're living with this change. And, um, you know, it, it's horrible to, you know, have to go through that journey. But I feel like every time I sit with a patient and family, I'm amazed at how people have the grace and love to, you know, weather these very challenging changes that are happening in their life every day. And so it's, it's, it's really the patients and the families that inspire me the most. I think next is our amazing team members. We've got such an amazing, and the the community as a whole, you know, no drug companies are in this field to make a buck. I mean, these are rare diseases. So I think that there are so many different committed scientists and clinicians of various types that are just putting their lives into trying to change how these conditions affect people. And That inspires me too. I just feel like we are doing this because we we love what we do and we want to change the tragedy for the patients and families that are living with these diseases.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can learn more about Remember Me at RememberMeFTD.com. Or by following us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. We release new episodes each week on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can learn more information about our sponsors in the show notes and on our Instagram. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.